can take your Bibles and turn them with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 13. As we continue our series, Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ, I hope we can do more of that this morning. Amen. John, chapter 13. It's Thursday night of Passover week in Jerusalem, and we are less than 24 hours away from Jesus' execution. And so, what unfolds in the next few chapters carries an extra weight, uh, an extra measure of weightiness. The shadow of the cross looms larger than ever. The sense of urgency is increasing. Time is running out for Jesus to teach His disciples, and there is still so much more He has to instruct them on uh, before His departure. And what I love about these next uh, several chapters is that it's, it's going to be like we too are sitting at the feet of the Master. We too will have an opportunity to be personally instructed by the Lord Jesus Christ on the most weightiest of matters. Brothers and sisters, we are about to go to school these next few weeks. We are about to enter into the very best seminary you could ever want to go to with the very best instructor you could ever have. And what unfolds in chapter 13 is the first of these lessons. So let's learn from the Master together. Uh, please stand with me one more time. Uh, we stand at Harbin's church uh, when we read the sermon text out of honor and reverence for the Word of God. It's a way of reminding us that these are not just the words of mere men. Yes, the Apostle John did write these things down, but he did so inspired by the Holy Spirit. Let's keep that in mind as we read. John chapter 13, we're going to read the whole chapter. God's Word says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands, and that He had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside His outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around His waist. Then He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around Him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, "'Lord, do you wash my feet?' Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean. But not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do, just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, 
Blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus, so Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what are you going to do? Do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or uh, that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is your holy and inspired word, and I pray that your word would do what I cannot do, which is speak mightily, touch hearts, and change lives. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, what is love. If you're a child of the 60s, all kinds of things might come to your head, but if you're a child of the 60s, you may remember the Beatles song, All You Need Is Love. And Beatles manager Brian Epstein said, well, he actually called the song inspired. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he said that the nice thing about it is that it cannot be misinterpreted. It's a clear message saying that love is everything. Some of you younger folks are children of the 90s. Throughout the 90s, I was a disc jockey for a pop radio station, and for that reason, it can be hard, very hard for me to get certain tunes out of my head, because as a disc jockey, I had to play them over and over and over and over again. Some of you guys, you listen to the radio, you're like, why do they always play the same thing over and over? That was me. I did that. Not because I liked it, but because I had to do that. 
And so for me, I've got these songs embedded in my brain for better or for worse, sometimes for worse. And so every time I hear the question, what is love? Inevitably, a dance song. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Now you're like, Deemer, you've got it in my head. Why'd you do that? Inevitably, a dance song that I had to play a lot goes racing through my head where the lead singer sings the very deeply profound lyrics, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. Yeah, you can pray for me about that. On top of that, when you throw in messages received from our peers, uh, from the media, romance, movies, world, religions, we get a vast spectrum of definitions and descriptions of love. One thing is clear. Love is something that everyone deems is important and absolutely essential for life, even if we can't agree on exactly what it is. As we come to John chapter 13, it's very interesting that out of all the final teachings that Jesus could leave with His disciples, out of all the ways He could equip them before they're, they're sent out on their mission to establish the church and take the gospel to the nations, His final teachings to His disciples begin with a bucket of water and a towel and a lesson about love. And we're going to learn several things about love. We're going to learn a few things about Jesus' love in particular in John chapter 13. And the first thing that we learn is that Jesus' love serves us. Jesus' love serves us. Look at verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. All right, so this is, this is what's on Jesus' mind right now. He knows His hour is here. He knows where He has come from. He knows where He is going. He's going to the cross. That's the climax of His mission. That's what's on His mind. And, and so in light of those things, verse 4, He laid aside His outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around His waist, and, and then he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Sometimes the Bible can be hard to understand because of significant cultural and historical gaps between us today and them yesterday. But interestingly enough, there are some things that aren't that hard at all to understand things that seem to be nearly universal to all people in all times and all places. And, and one of those things that has persisted across time and cultures is attitudes about people's feet. Who here likes the idea of handling somebody else's dirty, sweaty, smelly, stinky feet? I don't see any hands going up. That, that's not very appealing to people now, and it wasn't very appealing to people then. This is something that we all can identify with. If anything, the problem of repulsive feet was even more of an issue in uh, first century Palestine. Everyone wore open sandals, and the roads of Palestine were dirty and dusty. Sanitary conditions were poor. Animal waste would be everywhere. And so, and so as folks walked around, the, the people's feet would naturally become encrusted encased with this filth, with this mud and grime and everything else that was on the roads. And if it had just rained, even worse. And so feet would get really disgusting really fast. 
And so it was customary for homes to have basins of water on hand. And if the home had servants, well, even among slaves, there was a hierarchy, believe it or not. And so foot washing would be reserved for only the lowliest of slaves. Like, like you got, you know, your totem pole full of slaves, but only the guy that's at the very bottom, maybe it would be appropriate for him to do that. As a matter of fact, a lot of Jews argue that it wasn't appropriate for, for any Jewish slave to do that. Maybe a Gentile, but not a Jewish slave. It was, it was too demeaning and degrading and humiliating for practically anyone. And, and just very inappropriate for almost anyone to do that. And so what does Jesus do here? Jesus takes the form of a slave. He humiliates himself, even in his appearance, right? He, it says he strips off his outer garments. You know, I was looking around for some art, you know, based on John 13, and, and pretty much all the art that I found, Jesus was still fully clothed. But it says here he took off his outter garments, garments plural, right? All he's, he's wearing a, a loincloth and a towel, and his appearance is that of the most menial, the most lowly of slaves. He appears to be the weakest of men. In that culture, humility was seen as a weakness, not strength. You're strong, people thought then, and many people think today, that you're strong when you're on top, Right? Uh, you're strong when you're giving the orders and people are serving you. But here, Jesus stoops down low to serve. Now, this story has become so familiar to us that I fear that it has lost its impact. Let me try to help you. If, uh, if one day I showed up at your house um, with... Um, some cleaning supplies, and I offered to scrub your toilet. I'm not offering, but I'm just saying if. <laughs> no, listen, if you need me to, I'm, I just read John 13, all right? So if you ask me to, I got to do it, right? No. And, 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 I would, and I would do that, and I would clean your toilet. You would think that was a very nice gesture, and, you know, well, that's, that's, that was great of him, and you'd thank me, and you would send me on my way. But imagine if one day there was a knock on the door, and you open the door, and standing there in front of you, not, it was not me, but standing there in front of you with Clorox spray, a toilet scrubber, and a bucket was President Trump. And he's there in his three-piece suit, and he's got a couple of guards behind him, and he just wanted to clean your toilet. You would be absolutely stunned. You would be amazed. Now, think about the story here in John 13. It's not your pastor, and it's not your president. It's your God. The one whom John says in chapter 1 made everything. And here is the creator of the universe on his knees, washing his creation, scrubbing the dirt from the skin of the disciples, washing between their toes, removing all the stains. This is scandalous. And this explains Peter's reaction in verse 6. Look at verse 6. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Now, this is just classic Peter. We, we've seen this before from him, haven't we? He's brash. He's impulsive. <clears throat> He's a speak first, ask questions later kind of guy. And Peter is just thrown for a loop by this. You are the Lord. You shouldn't be, you shouldn't be doing this. 
Now, now Peter's initial response is, is understandable. I think we would all be very surprised in that moment. And so Jesus' initial response to him is gentle. Verse 7, Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. But that's, that's not good enough right? Peter digs in his heels, and at this point, he definitely crosses the line. Verse 8, Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And the Greek is even stronger. It's like a double negative. You shall never, ever wash my feet. No way. Now, Peter is not being humble here. He's being prideful. It hurts our pride to be served by somebody greater than we are. And he is opposing the Lord Jesus Christ here. That is the height of pride. Now, what Jesus is doing outwardly is a parable. It's a picture, and it's pointing us to something deeper. It's showing us something about Jesus' person and work, and Peter doesn't get that. Jesus says, you will understand later, meaning later meaning his death and his resurrection. This is all going to make sense to you in hindsight, because the thing that the symbol of foot washing points to will have taken place, and it's all going to come together in your head then. In verse 8, Jesus responds to Peter's concern by saying, and he's, he's more firm now, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So right here we see that Jesus is obviously thinking of something beyond the removal of dirt from the toes. If Jesus doesn't provide a washing, it is impossible for Peter to have a share with Jesus, which essentially means uh, it's impossible for him to belong to Jesus to be saved by Jesus, to have a part in what Jesus is doing. You can't have any part of me or of what I offer, Peter, unless I wash you. So the foot washing is obviously an illustration pointing to something else, because it's not dirt on our feet that keeps us from Jesus, right? It's the stain of sin that separates us from Him, and so ultimately what is required is for, for, for us to have a share in Jesus is a removal, is a washing away of that stain. And what is it that Jesus does that provides a washing that saves us and allows us to belong to Christ? Of course, we know it's His death. Foot washing was the work associated with the very lowliest of slaves. And crucifixion was the dreadful punishment associated with the lowliest of slaves. People higher up in society were exempt from this kind of punishment. This horrific kind of execution was reserved for particularly dangerous criminals, insurrectionists, and lowly slaves. As a matter of fact, crucifixion became so associated with slaves that it became known as the slave's punishment. That's what it was commonly called. Jesus, in washing the feet of the disciples takes on the form of a lowly servant, of a slave, and his humility in serving his disciples points towards a greater humiliation to come the next day, a greater act of service, his death on the cross, which would lead to a greater cleansing, not a cleansing of dirt and grime from the feet, but a cleansing of the stain of sin from the hearts of all who believe in Jesus. And so when we look at the foot washing in John 13, we don't want to look at it as an end to itself, but to look at it in light of what Jesus is about to do on the cross in just a few hours, a few hours away from this event. 
And the disciples don't get this now, but Jesus promises that they're going to understand, the, understand this later on. But right now, Peter is obstinate. But Peter's got to submit to this. Because if Peter, in his pride, cannot accept being served by the Lord who humiliates himself through foot washing on Thursday, how much more difficult will it be to accept the humiliation of a crucified Savior on Friday? The cross of Christ is something that is very difficult for many people to accept. And as Peter is repulsed by the idea of Jesus washing his feet, so many are repulsed by the gospel And like Peter, they say, no way, I refuse this. And yet, you can have no share in Jesus apart from receiving by faith His sacrifice for you on the cross. Because of our sin, because of our rebellion and crimes against God, we are on spiritual death row. Death and hell is the price for our sin and for you and I to receive a stay of execution, to receive a pardon. Somebody else needs to pay the price for you and be executed on your behalf. And so, friend, if you haven't received Christ and His payment for your sins by faith, I want to urge you to do that today. That's for you. That's the most important takeaway that you can take from this message. You are, uh, you are rescued from your sins, and you are forgiven by letting Jesus serve you not by you serving Him. That's not how you get saved. Don't serve God to be saved. You can't clean yourself. You can't purify yourself. Jesus needs to stoop down low like a slave and serve you by washing you with His blood. So Jesus' love serves us, but also Jesus' love cleanses us. After Jesus tells Peter, if you don't let me wash you, you have no share in me, look at what Peter says in verse 9. Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Now again, classic Peter, right? He is just this intense, all or nothing kind of guy. One minute, you're not going to wash my feet, Jesus. Next minute, oh, wash it all, Jesus. Just my hands, my head, my feet, bring it all on. And Jesus does something interesting. He adjusts the meaning of the foot-washing metaphor, and he gives us a second application. The first application had to do with the initial washing of salvation, right? If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. But now, look at verse 10. Jesus said to him, "'The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean.'" So now, the washed feet represent something different. There are... are, There are now two types of cleansing, two types of cleaning in this metaphor. There is a cleaning of the whole person, and there is a cleaning of the feet. The cleaning of the whole person, the the bathing, represents the complete and total cleansing from the guilt and condemnation of sin. It's a once and for all act never to be repeated. And uh, as the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans Uh, There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, period. If you are a believer, you don't need to fear condemnation. You don't need to fear hell. You, You don't need to fear being cast out of God's family. Once his child, always his child. But in spite of that initial one time, never to be repeated cleansing, there is another type of regular cleansing that is crucial. 
Let me explain it with an illustration. Say my son, Elijah, gets in trouble for something. Now, now this is, you know, Elijah never gets into trouble. This is just for illustrative purposes, okay? So let's, let's pretend that he got in trouble for something. Well, guess what? He's still my son, right? The relationship is still there. He doesn't have to become my son all over again. At the moment the adoption papers were signed, that was it. It was a done deal. And he'll now always be a part of my family. Once a web, always a web. <laughs> for better or for worse, welcome. There's nothing that he needs to do to become more my son. And praise God for that. However, if he gets in trouble with me, if he disobeys, if he's in rebellion going through a time of of disobedience, do you think that that might practically affect some things in our relationship? As long as my son is in that rebellious state, there's going to be a bit of a cloud over that relationship, right? Less joy, less peace, less pleasure in the relationship, maybe a little more pain. And so what needs to happen is for my son to ask for forgiveness with a repentant attitude, and then things are restored between us. He doesn't need to become my son again. Same thing is true in our Christian life. You're a Christian, no condemnation. You're saved, you're on your way to heaven, you're a child of God. That's the initial cleansing. That's the bathing that Jesus refers to in verse 10. But... Just as when a man who has bathed walks through the filthy streets of Palestine and his feet get dirty throughout the day, even the best of Christians are not perfect. We will not walk through the sinful, this sinful world totally unpolluted. And so just like that man walking the dusty streets doesn't need an entire bath, only a foot washing, So the believer doesn't need to become a Christian all over again. You don't need to get saved twice or three times or ten times. And by the way, there are churches that encourage that. Man, what a lack of peace there must be in those types of of churches. But you've already been made clean by the blood of Jesus if you've placed your trust in Him. You've already been bathed. You're already a child of God. But but your feet, your feet have become caked with the mud and grime of this world, and you feel distant from God. And well, guess what happened? God didn't move. You did. You know, the most miserable person in the world, I think, in many ways, is not a non-Christian, but it is a Christian who is living in willful, unrepentant rebellion against God. And if that's you today, there will be this cloud over your relationship with with the Lord. There will be this cloud until you confess your sins and repent. But you know what? The good news is, is that that distance can be bridged in an instant. That cloud can be removed. Come before God with a broken and humble and repentant spirit, and you will begin to experience the joy of your salvation again. You see, in addition to that once-for-all cleansing of sin that brings us into God's family and gives us a home in heaven, there is a type of daily cleansing that is required for us to truly enjoy our relationship with God. I say daily because I don't know about you, but man, I mess up daily. I sin daily. I have a long way 
to go. And I need that continual cleansing from God. And so, our failure should not drive us to despair, but should drive us back to the cross, back to the one who saved us in the first place. And so, we then, like the prodigal son, will be welcomed back with open arms every time. The Apostle John says elsewhere in 1 John chapter 1, uh, verses 8 and 9, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse, there's that word, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He, he wrote that to Christians who in one sense were already clean, but needed another type of, of cleansing. Thank God that our God is faithful to us even when we are faithless. Now, let's look at the final application of foot, the, of foot washing that the Lord Jesus gives us. We, we've seen that Jesus' love serves us, Jesus' love cleanses us, and also Jesus' love compels us, compels us to, to do something. Uh, verse 14, Jesus says, "'If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, and you also, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example.'" that you also should do just as I have done to you. Now, 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 what does that mean? Does that mean that right now we need to stop everything and take off of our, our, our shoes and our socks right now and, and start washing one another's feet in this room? There are churches that do that. There are denominations. That's an important part of, of what they do. But that's not the point. Jesus says, I've done this as an example. That word example in, in the Greek is gives this idea of, of to build upon, build upon this. It's not the act as much as it is the spirit and the attitude behind the act that is going to inform and influence how you treat other people. And so, if you go down to verse 34, Jesus says, "'A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another.'" All right? So, so we've got some specifics here. We know we're supposed to love each other. How do we love each other? We love each other in the way that Jesus loved us. And how did Jesus love the disciples here? Well, He washed their feet, yes, but again, we can't look at the foot washing in isolation from its ultimate meaning. We've got to look to the cross. The cross of Christ is the ultimate expression of God's love for you. And so the question is, what is love? And the answer is, this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus says we are to love one another as He has loved us. Paul Tripp calls this type of love a cruciform love, that is, love in the shape of a cross. Here's the application for us. We are supposed to humbly lower ourselves, to go way beyond what people might normally do, even if it means great cost to ourselves. We're to do that with the purpose of loving and serving others in this church in a way that benefits them and is for their own good. That's exactly what Jesus did for you. And so Paul writes in Philippians, "'Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility 
count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Literally, that word is slave in the Greek. Taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, Paul's main goal in writing Philippians chapter 2 is not simply to teach them about the deity of Christ. Uh, Philippians 2 is a great chapter to go to. It's a great go-to verse if, you're, if, you, if you want to talk about and learn about the deity of Christ, or if you're talking with people who don't believe that the Bible teaches that Jesus is God. Great text to go to. But what Paul is doing here <clears throat> is not just Christology for the sake of Christology. Paul's doing something very practical here. Paul's writing to the church in Philippi, and he's thinking, okay, there's some, there's some threats to this church in unity. There's some threats to this church in, in love and in humility, and if they don't get this right, it's going to destroy the church. And he wants to teach them how to love one another. And he's thinking, how can I do that? What's, what is the illustration I can use to help them in this? And so he holds up the sacrifice of Christ as an example. And so what Jesus is saying in John 13 and what Paul is saying in Philippians 2, listen closely to this, is that you need to treat people in this church, your brothers and sisters in this room, you need to treat them exactly the way Jesus treated you. Don't let that just slip by in one ear and out the other. If you're already a, a Christian this morning, that's, this is going to be one of the big takeaways for you. You need to treat your brothers and sisters exactly the way Jesus treated you. When you think about the role that, that you play at Harbin's Church, is that your aim? Is that your mission? Did you come to church this morning seeking to treat others in this room exactly as Jesus treated you? Are you willing to humble yourself to, to think about their needs before your own? Are you treating others as more significant than you? Or is your life in the home and in the church a life that is self-focused, screaming, my agenda, my comfort, my needs, my desires, my preferences, my interests, serve me, do this for me, meet my needs? Or are you looking for ways to go out of your way to serve others at home and at Harbin's, to take a a towel and a bucket of water and serve them? Not, not in the washing of feet, but in the meeting of whatever needs they may have in that moment. There are people in this church who don't need you to scrub their feet as much as they need you to simply show them kindness, to enter into their world and their hurts and their struggles and reach out to them. There are people in this room who need you to get over yourself and to minister to them with the word of encouragement, with an invitation to supper, with an extension of forgiveness and mercy and grace if they've offended you. 
You can start with something even as simple and as basic as, as using our next fellowship meal to, to not sit with your best buddies, but to, to sit with someone else and get to know them. You'll be surprised at how even that bit of kindness will go a long way with someone and can powerfully minister to them. You can, you can pray through the church directory. You can stop waiting for people to come to you, and you can take the initiative and approach people in this church and simply ask, how are you doing? How can I pray for you? Learn about needs and meet them. I'm still learning how to do this too, friends, all right? I've got a lot of room to grow in this area, so we are all learning together. I'm not preaching to you as one who has got it all together. Any authority I have, it comes from the experience of being a sinner who has messed up a lot, and so I know what I'm talking about. I'm a fellow sinner, learning and growing with you, so you can add me to your prayers that I would get over my sorry self and be a better foot washer. Let's all pray that end for each other here. But let's start by praying that for ourselves, by, by getting the log out of our own eye first before worrying about somebody else who we think may be sinning. I think the big, the big trap for all of us in a message like this is, is that we can sit here and listen to this and, and we're going to have images of people going through our head. Yeah, that person needs to do, to do that. That person needs to, to change in that area and not, not think about ourselves. And so if you fall into that trap, you're going, to, you're going to miss it. And this message is not going to be helpful. Actually, it can be used by the enemy to exacerbate the problems that are in our hearts. So we need to tread carefully here. And I'm praying even now that the Holy Spirit will, will help us. Friends, when you are... When you were lost, when you were a non-Christian, you lived for yourself. But Jesus died, not simply to give us a ticket to heaven, but to release you from a life of self-absorption. And so, 2 Corinthians 5.15, and He died for all. Why did He die for all? Why did He die for you? That those who live might no longer live for themselves. Or, Galatians 5, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Do you see that as your reason for being on planet earth? To live for God and serve others. Now, you may say, well, Redeemer, that is so hard because I'm going through my own trials, my own trials right now. I need people to reach out and minister to me. I'm hurting. I'm going through agony. How can I do this? And you know what, brother and sister? I don't want to minimize your trials and what you were going through. But know this. No one was facing more agony than Jesus Christ in that upper room. He was hours away from the cross. He was going through a trial of such magnitude and weight that, that we can't even understand it fully. And the weight was only going to get heavier. And he was about to be left all alone in his trial. He was on the verge of suffering more than anyone else in this room has ever suffered. On the verge of being on the receiving end of the greatest act of injustice ever to be committed. You think people have committed acts of injustice against you? 
And yet Jesus, He serves. And yet Jesus loves. And yet Jesus stoops low anyway for the disciples in that room and for you on the cross. I'm not saying that it's wrong for you to desire someone else to minister to you. I want people to minister to me. Bring it on. Go for it. But what I am saying is that if we as a church sit around and refuse to reach out and serve others until somebody serves us, nobody's going to be loving anybody. We'll all be sitting on our hands, grumbling about how nobody is loving us, and and all the while we're part of the problem, and we will be a dead church. We see something like this uh, grumbling attitude in in the upper room. This, this attitude of a, of a, of a lack of, uh, of service, everyone's sitting on their hands doing nothing. Verse 4 says that Jesus rose from supper to do this. Rose from supper to do this. That's strange. Maybe you caught this. Your feet are supposed to be washed when? Before supper, not during. This tells me two things. One, there is no servant on hand. And two, none of the other disciples wanted to serve in that way. And so they all just go into supper with dirty feet. And everybody is reclining at table. And now, now it's not like a high table like, you know, in the Da Vinci painting, you know, things you might have in your mind. This is first century Middle East uh, uh, dining. It's, it's It's a low table. With a, with, a, with a mat underneath, and they're all kind of reclining backwards on their elbow, all kind of going into each other even. And, 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 and so their feet are radiating out from the table. Their feet are sticking out. They're, it's just, they're all, their feet are all out there for everyone to see and smell. And the fact that Jesus does this during supper, during supper, is an indictment to the disciples. Obviously, none of the disciples volunteered to take the role of a servant. Who's going to wash the feet? Well, I'm not. Well, I'm not either. Did you see his feet? Did you see Thomas's feet? He's halfway across the room, and I can smell that. No thanks. As a matter of fact, if you read the parallel account in the Gospel of Luke, <clears throat> Luke gives us more information. You'll see that same evening, the disciples are arguing about who is the greatest, who should be on top, and who should be served. It's all self-focused and self-obsessed, and all the while, Jesus is facing the most intense trial of all, and nobody's even thinking about him. They are grumbling, and they are complaining amongst themselves. And everybody else is just sitting around waiting for somebody to serve somebody, and nobody is serving anybody. Nobody is taking the initiative except for Jesus. I wonder if there are those in this room of disciples, I mean in this room of disciples here at Harvins Church. And I wonder if you are bitter because you're in a room filled with other, other disciples who are not serving you. Friends, I don't want the disciples in this room to be like the disciples in this room. 
I don't want this room to be a room full of stinky feet. And everyone is, is sitting around and waiting for someone else to make the first move and stoop low. And oh, how I pray that Harbin's church would grow into a deeper culture of foot washing. Now, I do see it happening here. I do see these moments that encourage my heart, and I see you stepping out and doing those sorts of things, and it's a a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful thing. It encourages my heart to, to, to witness those acts. But we have much room to grow here, don't we? Don't, don't you? Or am I the only one? <laughs> and I pray that God will stir that slave mentality up within us as a church family. Regarding other people in this room as more important than ourselves. Folks, we are to be slaves to each other. You ever thought about that before in that way? You say, Deemer, I want to serve in ministry. What should I do at Harbin's? Answer, be a slave. Take initiative. Stoop low. Wash feet. Discover needs. Meet them. Jesus shows us in John 13 that love is aggressive. He makes the move. He takes the initiative not waiting for anybody else. When this service is over in just a few minutes, don't just go and show warmth and kindness to the same old people and your same old little circle of friends, but lovingly approach a brother or sister that is way different than you and and, and somebody that you struggle to find common ground with. Maybe even to the one who has rubbed you the wrong way maybe even to one who has sinned against you. And you are looking at them, and you are looking at their stinky feet, and you are thinking, I can't do that. They've hurt me. They've let me down. They'll probably just do it again. I'll just pretend I don't see them on Sunday morning and keep myself busy with more comfortable people. You know, I totally get that. I do. It really hurts when someone in the church lets you down, doesn't it? I'm going to let you in on a secret. The church has let me down too over the years in multiple churches. I'm not sure if a pastor is supposed to say that. Strike that from the tape? No, I'm just kidding. Um, The greatest hurts that I've ever experienced in my life have been in the church. And I bet you some of you agree To be hurt by people in the world is one thing, but boy, does it sting when it's at the hands of your brothers and sisters in the church or those who should be closest to you. The Bible speaks to this, and and the Bible's solution for you is not to quit church. Instead, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, check it out, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Let's not romanticize the first century church, y'all. Let's not do that. We, we like to think of it as some sort of utopia. I hear people say this all the time. Oh, if we just get back to just how it was in the first century, it'd just be so much just better. It'd just be so good. Folks, it wasn't. It wasn't as awesome as you think it 
is or was. The reason why Paul tells the church in Colossae to bear with one another, to put up with one another, is because he knew that there would be people in that church and in all the churches who would rub one another the wrong way. You don't have to tell people to bear with one another when everyone is is the same, when everyone is comfortable with one another, when everyone is in lockstep and they're doing the whole kumbaya thing. You don't have to tell them to, to bear with one another. Paul expects there's going to be difficulty. He expects there's going to be tensions. He expects people to be irritating and grating on one another. That's precisely why he has to say, bear with one another. That, that, this is, okay, the Word of God endures forever, but that's one part of the Word of God that's not going to really have practical application in heaven. Because it all comes so much easier then because we all be sinless. <laughs> There'll be nothing to bear with, only, only good stuff. I can't wait for that. We are to bear with one another in our differences. And then if it goes beyond mere differences and into sin, then what? Well, he tells us, we forgive, and we forgive, and we forgive. Jesus says 70 times 7. That's not 490 times. That's on and on and on. Paul wouldn't write this if he didn't expect the members of these churches to be sinning against one another and hurting one another. It's going to happen. On this side of heaven, we are far from perfect. And part of how God is going to grow us up and mature us is to, on purpose, put us together with people in the same church who aren't easy to love and to give you a pastor who isn't easy to love. And to even put you in a situation where you may sometimes be hurt and offended by others. That kind of environment is the cauldron of growth and maturity and becoming Christ-like. Not in isolation, just listening to podcasts, sermon podcasts on home, at home, getting yourself fed. But actually in the community of faith, iron sharpening iron. And so, we aren't supposed to respond to the other person on the basis of what they deserve. We are supposed to respond to that person as Christ responded to you when you sinned against Him and offended Him. And so, here you are now at Harbin's church, and you are looking at the stinky feet of that brother or sister who ticked you off last Sunday. And you are thinking, I can't do that. They've hurt me. They've let me down and they'll probably just do it again. And the Scriptures say to you, forgive, forbear, wash feet. Image Christ to your brother or sister. If they are struggling with sin, then they actually need you to image Christ to them, don't they? Not for you to avoid them, but to image Christ to them. Are they going to disappoint you again? Maybe. But can I just remind you of something else? Going back to the upper room here in John 13. Jesus washed the feet of all 12 men in that room, including Peter, who would break his heart and deny him, including Judas, who would betray him. And Jesus knew that in advance. And Jesus still honors them 
Jesus lowers himself and humiliates himself and stoops down low for Peter, stoops down low for Judas. Would you wash Judas's feet? And so if there's somebody in this group of disciples in this room here at Harbin's Church who has hurt your feelings or has let you down in some way, someone whom it would be very hard for you to stoop low and treat them with honor and serve them, you know what? That's probably the very first person you should take your bucket of water and a towel to. And as Harbin's Church develops a culture of loving, other-centered, servant-minded, foot-washing, Jesus promises us two benefits. You can find one of them in verse 35. He says, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. How you and I treat one another in this church, how well we love one another and wash one another's feet, actually will be a living testimony to all people that we belong to Jesus. To the lost people out there, to the world out there, there's something going on here in this church. They're different. This is unusual what's happening here, and it's a testimony. Not that we're great, but that Jesus is great, and we belong to Him, and we're just acting like Him because He's changing us. If we, if we move towards one another with a strange, bizarre, supernatural, foot-washing love, it will be evidence to all people that the message we preach is not only real, but that we've been changed by it. But there will be another benefit, and that's joy. Look at verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. That word blessed there means happy. Happy are you if you do these things. Not just if you know them, but if you do them. There is a joy. There is a happiness that comes in serving. And we know that's true. The most miserable people in any church are more often than not those who are self-focused and self-absorbed, grumbling and complaining about how the church isn't doing enough for them. And now that might be true. The church may not be doing enough for them. Churches fall short of meeting people's needs all the time, including this one, which is why sermons like this are necessary. But the one who has a foot-washing attitude will be happier in that flawed, messed-up church than the one who doesn't have that attitude. As Jesus said elsewhere, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And this isn't just theory for Jesus. Jesus isn't calling you to anything different than what he himself embraced. Jesus knows full well the connection between self-denying, costly, sacrificial service and joy. He knows the connection between those two things. Because later on that evening, in just a couple of hours from this John 13, Jesus, with the agonies of the cross on his mind, will be praying in a garden. And the weight of what's coming is so heavy, it's so massive. Jesus' dread of the cross is so intense, he is praying to the Father with such intensity that his capillaries are bursting, and he is sweating drops of blood. And he prays, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me, but not my will. Yours be done. You be glorified, Father. And as Jesus moves into this act of slavish service for you, serving you, you whom he knows would let him down again and again, you whom he knew would break his heart as you would spurn him and reject him again and again. He goes into this act of service, knowing full well the kind of people that he is serving and the, and the kind of weight and pain and agony he will endure as he, he will be struck by God the Father on your behalf 
for your sins. And what is it that sustains Jesus in the middle of his trial, in the middle of his agony and soul torment and his dread of the cross? The thing that sustains him is joy. Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Jesus stooped as low as he could for you. Nobody had been so high who had come so low as Jesus. And and, and it's remarkable when you consider how Jesus condescended himself for wretches like us, how we wretches dig in our heels and refuse to come down off of our little pedestals to wash the feet of fellow wretches as if we are so high and mighty. And yet there is only one who is high and mighty, and he comes down off of his pedestal to be our slave which is why we sing, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery, in the dawning of the King. He, the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity, in our longing, in our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ who condescended, took on flesh to ransom us. And He doesn't do it begrudgingly. He does it for the joy set before Him, the joy that would come in giving glory to God the Father, and the joy that would come in saving you and making you into a joyful foot-washing servant, just like him. Praise God that we have a king who stoops so low for us. May we follow the lead of our king and stoop low for one another. Let's pray.